lecture six of lectures on painting by edward armitage this librivox recording is in the public domain lecture six on drawing drawing is the backbone of all great work and it is an art which if neglected when you are young does not appear ever to be acquired in after life most artists improve in color and particularly in execution as they get older but in drawing they seldom acquire greater correctness they acquire facility but not accuracy it is therefore of the highest importance that all students should carry out their studies in drawing as far as they possibly can whilst they are young i am not speaking of their chalk studies alone but also of their painted studies it often happens that as soon as a student gets a palette on his thumb he considers himself completely emancipated from all the trammels of correct drawing and after sketching his figure with a few hasty strokes of charcoal or red chalk he smears on his colour at once i have known some who would not condescend to make any preliminary outline at all but went in for drawing with the brush i can quite understand that when you first begin painting the novelty of the material and the difficulties of colour should prevent your drawing with the same precision and firmness as you would with charcoal and chalk but when these difficulties are overcome you should endeavour to return to your former precision it is very difficult when once a slovenly habit of drawing has been contracted to return to accuracy but nevertheless it is possible the fact is that an artist to excel as a draughtsman should consider himself a student all of his life the school of painting ought to be the school of drawing in colour and no student ought to be allowed to colour a badly drawn figure or head this was always the rule not only in delaroche's school but in all the ateliers of his contemporaries and as more than half the present members of the institute were students in these schools the system cannot have been a bad one it may surprise some of you to hear the time that was spent in drawing the figure before beginning to paint the model used to sit for six consecutive days from seven to twelve in summer and from eight to one in winter and an hour was allowed every day for intervals of rest during the whole first day sitting nothing but drawing was done sometimes the shades of the figure were rubbed in with bitumen or some transparent brown but no colour was ever used the master would come early on the tuesday and until he had passed as it were every student's drawing no one who studied seriously would think of laying on colour six hours therefore out of the twenty-four were spent before the actual painting began but at any rate good solid foundations had been laid well proportioned and carefully drawn figures were the rule and not the exception and if the student had not time to finish his work by the end of the week he would have at any rate a large portion of the figure carefully studied when a figure is well drawn the master will take a pleasure in giving the student some hints about the colour and will perhaps take the palette himself but to give instructions in colour when there is no drawing is like furnishing a house before the walls are built i have noticed that some of you in the life school attach too much importance to the mere outline and neglect the structure and internal markings of your figures 
now the bones and principal markings of a figure are of infinitely more consequence than the outline it is they which give the action and proportion and in every stage of figure drawing they should be accurately and clearly defined to serve as landmarks from which the outline may be mapped out if you were drawing a head you would not trace a sharp outline of the hair ears and cheeks without having first indicated the position of the eyes nose and mouth why then would you proceed on a different principle in drawing a figure there is another bad habit of drawing which has of late become too common in the schools and which i as visitor have often protested against and that is the practice of blackening the figure all over with the intention of working out the details with bread-crumb or the eraser it may be that this is the most expeditious way of producing a smoothly finished drawing but i am sure it is not the most artistic way an academy figure should be drawn on the same principle that a ship is built if you visit a shipbuilder's yard you will see vessels in all stages of progress but the future character and destination of each are discernible almost from the first laying out of the keel you can tell at a glance whether the future vessel is to be a clipper yacht a collier brig or a barge if you revisit the yard a month or two afterward you will find great progress the builder has got the planking on but the vessels have retained their original form in another month perhaps they will be found decked caulked coppered and ready for launching but they have never lost the original lines given them so it should be with your academy figures they will of course be less complete on the third and fourth days than on the ninth or tenth but in no stage of their progress should they present the formless hopeless appearance they too often do let me hasten to add that this inartistic way of drawing though too common here is not universal and that those who have chosen the better path will find the benefit of it hereafter i will now proceed to give you a few words of advice about figure drawing after you have left the schools and are painting pictures of your own it will seldom happen that when you have to introduce a nude or semi-nude figure into your picture you can copy the model exactly as you would in the academy schools there all you have to do is to copy what you see but if you have to represent a moses a prometheus or an andromeda and your model has short legs and deformed feet it will not do to be too literal in your copy of him artists often say on these occasions that the model puts them out and that they can get on better without nature of course if they copy all the defects of their model they may to a certain extent be right in saying that they do better without nature but even in this case i doubt it nature though cramped and vulgarized is better than feeble reminiscences of michelangelo or caracci an accomplished draughtsman will constantly refer to nature without servilely copying her it is not possible that the great sculptors of antiquity found even in greece such matchless specimens of humanity as the theseus the fighting gladiator or the milo venice it is still more incredible that they evolved these perfect forms out of their inner consciousness no they idealized and improved what they found not so much by taking the head of one model and putting it on the shoulders of another 
adding the arms of a third as by the much more subtle process of keen and artistic observation of various types of beauty to descend from the time of phidias to our own days you must if you wish to excel pursue the same method do not copy all the defects of your model but on the other hand do not fancy you can draw without a constant reference to nature it is far from my intention to deprecate the study of anatomy and particularly that kind of artistic anatomy which our professor so ably teaches but i am sure he would agree with me in saying that anatomy alone would only enable you to build up a coldly correct form of the human figure without either beauty or individuality anatomy and i may add academic studies generally must be looked upon as the grammar of figure painting and we all know that however necessary it may be for a writer to be grammatical grammar alone will not give him an elegant or even a clear style so it is in drawing and painting the knowledge of anatomy and drawing which you acquire here is not the end of art but only the beginning it would be out of place in this lecture to give you rules of proportion for the human figure these rules you can learn if you care about learning them elsewhere but it may be well for me to give you a few hints as to when and where it is right to depart from them first as to the size of the head you probably all know that the head measures from one-seventh to one-eighth of the height of the figure seven and a half heads to the figure is a good average proportion if however you have to draw figures of heroic size you will have to make the head barely one-eighth and the larger the size of your figures the smaller ought to be the relative size of the head michelangelo exceeded even these limits and some of his imitators who have always copied his defects rather than his good qualities have caricatured him by giving their figures a height of ten or eleven heads there is a point beyond which the sublime becomes the ridiculous whilst on this subject i would observe that these proportions can only be depended on when the head is neither inclined up nor down an upturned head measured from the chin to the top of the head is always much shorter than one whose facial angle is vertical and a head inclined downward and measured in the same way is considerably longer in colossal figures the hands and feet should be in proportion to the head and therefore rather small for the body and limbs it is generally advisable to make the leg from the patella downward somewhat longer than it is in nature length of leg gives style and elegance to a figure in many of the antique statues the apollo and the venus de medici for instance this method of improving nature seems carried to excess and i should recommend a middle path between the extreme length of the antique tibiae and the short dachshund-like legs of our models it must be remembered that if you preserve the centre of the figure where it ought to be you can only lengthen the tibia at the expense of the femur and although a great length from the knee to the instep may be desirable yet a very short thigh is certainly not an element of beauty in short and even in medium-sized models the middle of the figure is generally too low so that you may increase the length of the leg without at all diminishing the proportions of the thigh it is a curious fact 
that sitting and especially kneeling figures by the side of standing ones always appear small if represented of their exact relative size i have always found this to be the case and have invariably had to increase the dimensions of my kneeling figures although by so doing i knew i was violating strict truth as another instance of a case where a departure from perfect accuracy is necessary i may mention the drawing of foreshortened arms and legs particularly when they are only slightly foreshortened unless the outline and muscular development are kept rather fuller than it is in nature the limbs will look withered and poor style in drawing is not synonymous with correctness there can be no true style without a certain amount of correctness but on the other hand a drawing may be very correct and yet deficient in style photographs are a good illustration of the distinction no one will dispute the general accuracy of photography and yet how few photographs possess the element of style a fine style of drawing may be defined as the delineation of beautiful forms in a masterly and simple manner it must be founded on nature but purified and refined by the continual study of the antique the execution should not be timid and laboured but on the other hand it should not obtrude itself by its dexterity michelangelo and raphael are generally accepted as the great masters of style in drawing and it is very noticeable how simple and unobtrusive their execution is michelangelo's departure from natural proportions and his often forced attitudes give great offence to many modern artists particularly to the medievalists and instead of recognizing in him as sir joshua did the great master par excellence of style and drawing they strongly object to his peculiarities for myself i cannot say that i worship him to the extent that sir joshua did but when i recollect the timid and meagre drawing of the florentine and umbrian schools of the period and compare these poor forms with michelangelo's creation of adam and eve in the panels of the sistine chapel i must acknowledge that his great reputation as a draughtsman and designer is fully deserved sir joshua reynolds in his discourses with which most of you are familiar has entered very fully into the question of style or of what used in his day to be called the great style or the grand style i am not going to inflict on you many quotations from the celebrated discourses but there is one sentence which i shall quote and it will serve as a text on which to graft my own remarks on the subject of style the passage is this quote, the whole beauty and grandeur of the art consists in being able to get above all singular forms local customs particularities and details of every kind it appears to me that sir joshua ought to have added at the end of his condemnation of singular forms particularities and details of every kind the words when they are mean or trivial forms may be full of character and even beautiful though singular many of the antique fawns heads though singular enough have the elements of style in them raphael's cripple at the beautiful gate of the temple is singular to the verge of grotesqueness but he in no way detracts from the grand style of the cartoon many other examples of singular forms might be given from the works of acknowledged masters of style 
then again if by details ugly details are meant i quite agree with sir joshua in thinking them incompatible with a grand style but it is detail which gives individuality to a figure and in the fighting gladiator the dancing fawn and indeed in all the masterpieces of antiquity the detail is most elaborate neglect of detail is the besetting sin of those painters who aim at the grand style they fail to see that the same process of selection may be applied to the detail as well as to the general proportions of the figure in a portrait you must of course copy your sitter you must take him as you do a wife for better for worse he may have a cast in his eye or a conspicuous pimple on his nose which of course as a faithful portraitist you are bound to reproduce you are under no such obligation if you are painting an ideal head from the same individual you may omit the pimple and make him look straight but your same sitter may have finely formed furrows across his brow or delicate expressive wrinkles extending from the corners of his eyes are you in painting an ideal head to neglect these landmarks of age and wisdom i say by no means neither in painting nor sculpture the word ideal from a misconception of its meaning has come to be almost a term of reproach and at a recent lecture in a royal institution some ridiculous parody of canova was nicknamed ideal and contrasted unfavourably with a masterly portrait bust by donatello this is about as fair as if i holding a brief on the other side were to produce the theseus as a specimen of the ideal and madame tussaud's effigy of the claimant of the realistic the ideal or what sir joshua calls the grand style means a generalization of beautiful forms but it has nothing to do with neglect of detail except when such detail is trivial ugly or superfluous it must also be remembered that detail does not mean furrows wrinkles and veins alone it means also minute correctness in rendering a form the outward contour of any portion of the human form is never perfectly spherical nor perfectly elliptic nor perfectly straight and it is the delicate perception and artistic execution of form which constitutes beauty take the original of the laocoon and a common fourth-rate garden cast of the statue which has stood half a dozen english winters and has had the benefit of several good coats of paint in this cast all the beautiful passages of the original have disappeared and the neglectors of detail get what they think so admirable namely a general want of precision and individuality michelangelo himself who is sir joshua's high priest of the grand style gives plenty of detail whenever his work is not meant to be seen at a distance in his moses and other statues even the veins are carefully studied it is the custom in this as in most other academies for the student to begin with the antique and finish with the life the object of this is of course to avoid multiplying difficulties at first and to accustom him to draw from an inanimate object before he proceeds to copy one that is always more or less moving i should however very much wish that those who are ambitious of following the highest work of art would supplement their life studies by a return to the antique 
they would then perceive beauties which they little dreamt of during their apprenticeship they would acquire a fine sense for form and would learn to generalize the knowledge they had acquired in the life schools i would make this class of students the highest in the academy so that no one should feel that by returning to the antique he was being subjected to degradation in this last stage of the student's education artistic studies from the antique should be made and not what are called finished drawings such as are at present executed to compete for prizes the character and beauty of the antique should be given rapidly and by simple means before proceeding to speak of the difficult problem of drawing objects in motion i should wish to impress on your minds the importance of being able to draw tolerably from memory all drawing is strictly speaking an effort of memory you cannot look at your model and trace lines on your paper at one and the same time there must be an interval of a second or two and all that you have to do to acquire facility in drawing from memory is gradually to prolong this interval if you visit a large forge you are sure to see men in violent action either working the rolling mill or forging large masses of iron under the naismith hammer you may be certain that their action is perfectly natural and that it is not only natural but most appropriate to the work they are about men who have been rolling boilerplate for years are sure to set about their work in the most practical way sketching on these occasions is impossible except perhaps to a newspaper correspondent but there is nothing to prevent your watching the action of these men intently you will notice the various positions the body arms and legs assume to accomplish various tasks how each action is fitted to the work you will endeavour to draw from memory what you have noticed your drawings would doubtless be very imperfect but they will be infinitely better than what you could have produced before taking stock of what you saw at the forge in london you may not have opportunities of seeing much in the way of action that is worth drawing but even in london people skate play lawn tennis and other games which give rise to action and in the country there is always plenty to observe if you keep your weather eye open every one cannot become a horace vernet but i think that any fairly good draughtsman may after examining an object carefully learn to reproduce it two or three hours later when he reaches home and this kind of power though never cultivated in academic schools is one which every young artist ought to endeavour to acquire very young children unless they are asleep cannot be studied in the deliberate manner in which a professional grown-up model is studied wild animals again are difficult things to draw because they cannot be depended upon to retain the same position for any length of time it is in these cases that an artist who has exercised his memory has an enormous advantage over one who is merely a good academic draughtsman i will now turn to the question of how to represent objects which are meant to appear in motion as a man walking running or striking a horse galloping etc i do not intend to investigate the laws of motion nor to point out the muscles which are brought into action by violent movement but simply to analyze the appearance to our sense of vision of these various actions 
in drawing inanimate objects which are at rest that which is apparent to the eye really exists and therefore by drawing what you see you will be mathematically correct but even this apparent truism does not hold good in every case for example take the usual pictorial method of representing a star which although astronomically incorrect gives the impression a bright star produces on our organs of sight and is therefore the proper method seen through a telescope the planets become round disks and the brightest fixed stars mere points and there can be no doubt of the non-existence of any radiation and yet the appearance of it is so constant that the terms star-shaped starfish etc are always used to designate objects of this form and it is quite consistent with the soundest principles of art to represent what appears to be rather than what is when we come to consider moving objects we find plenty of contradiction between what appears to be and what is there are many moving objects which present no difficulty driving clouds or a ship in full sail are easily drawn because although moving rapidly through the air their form varies very little as they proceed and their apparent form is in no way different from their true form even the ever-heaving waves of the open sea though by no means easy to draw correctly offer no discrepancy between what you see and what is the big atlantic rollers and particularly the short steep irregular waves one sometimes meets with in the channel are awkward things to draw especially to a seasick artist but at any rate unless he is very far gone he sees nothing which does not really exist and no effect of wind on the waves is so rapid that he cannot see it the case however is widely different if you have to represent a rotating wheel the spokes of the wheel are there but it is impossible to see them all you will be able to make out is a kind of flickering radiation with perhaps some faint traces of concentric circles caused by mud spots or other marks on the spokes even when the wheel turns very slowly the spokes become blurred and confused and when it revolves briskly they are lost sight of altogether this is an extreme case in which nothing in the way of spokes is distinguishable and therefore nothing can be done but when we see a man running or a horse galloping we do distinguish the legs both of man and horse we get a decided impression both of form and action and it is our business as artists to convey that impression on paper or canvas it is not our business to draw man or horse in positions which may be true but which are contrary to our own impressions that there are plenty of such positions i hope to prove by means of these diagrams we have here two men walking one of whom has his left leg forward and the other his right leg this diagram represents them going along fair heel and toe and perhaps not very elegantly but at any rate it conveys the idea of walking now it is self-evident that in walking the legs must pass each other at every step let us endeavour to draw our pedestrian at the moment when one leg is passing in front of the other and we shall find it impossible to give the idea of fair heel and toe walking now why is this the reason appears to me to be twofold in the first place at each step 
there is a momentary pause when both feet are on the ground and the eye seizes on this pause and naturally associates the position the legs are in with the action of walking secondly it is only in this position that any idea can be given of the length of the step and the rate of the man's progress a photograph taken at the moment when one leg is passing the other would not convey the impression of forward movement in nature it is the actual motion of the leg which causes the attitude to appear all right but if we could arrest it instantaneously the action would appear as cramped in nature as it does on paper during a thunderstorm at night if you should ever happen to see a walking or a running man illumined by a flash of lightning you will notice that he does not appear to be moving at all unless the flash occurs just at the time when his legs are fully extended i have myself seen the curious effect of a sudden flash of light on a moving carriage and horse the horses though trotting fully eight miles an hour did not seem to be moving and every spoke in the wheels was as plainly seen as if they had not been rotating what i have said about the action of walking applies equally to running the attitude appears always more or less cramped unless the moment is seized when the runner's legs are fully extended the illustration of running given in flaxman's lectures is wrong in more than one particular in the first place the heel ought not to touch the ground it never does in running secondly the figure appears poised on his right foot indeed he would fall rather backward than forward and it is essentially necessary in expressing the action of running that the figure should appear to fall forward whenever one foot is on the ground in drawing the human figure either running or walking this must always be attended to otherwise the figure looks like an academy model with his hind foot comfortably propped up on a box it is possible that for a fractional part of a second a running man's leg might assume the vertical position given it by flaxman but this position even if true is one of those which ought never to be selected in the next fractional part of the second the foot being arrested by the ground and the body moving rapidly forward the leg must assume a slanting position and our man will be off his balance and under the necessity of rapidly bringing to the front his other leg and thus the idea of running is given as in the preceding diagram flaxman's floating and aerial female figures are exquisitely graceful and here he is seen at his best but i think that the action of his male figures is rather academic that is they suggest too much the life school where the model is placed in a position which he can hold for a considerable length of time i am quite aware that in a severe bas-relief composition or in a grave historical figure a runner should not be represented as he might appear at lilybridge grounds or racing after a cricket-ball at lord's he should proceed more by comparatively slow bounds than by quick steps but the sentiment of forward impetus should be just the same there is a fine example of a running figure in one of raphael's stanza i think it is in the heliodorus expelled from the temple 
in the next diagram the action approximates to flaxman's but there is this important difference that the left foot is in the air and we feel that before it gets a good grip on the ground the body will have moved on considerably and the balance of the figure will have a strong forward tendency as in the last illustration any attempt to represent a man running whilst one leg is crossing the other will be just as hopeless as to give the idea of walking under similar conditions in the action of striking the proper moment for the draughtsman to seize is either just before or just after the blow has been given here again if the arm were arrested midway the attitude of the striker would appear cramped and absurd moreover there would be nothing in the position of the arm to indicate whether the blow was a heavy or a light one exactly the same remarks apply to the action of throwing by accurately giving the thrower's preparatory position the power of the throw can be indicated and the same may to a certain extent be done by taking him after the stone or ball has left his hand but nothing satisfactory can come of attempting to draw him in an intermediate stage if we have to represent men rowing the best way is to draw them leaning forward and with outstretched arms the oars just catching the water the degree in which they are reaching forward is the key to the length of the stroke and therefore in great measure to the velocity of the boat if they are rowing a race or spurting their arms and backs would be almost horizontal if they are merely paddling their bodies would be only gently inclined forward we have no means in painting drawing or photography of indicating the number of strokes per minute any more than we have of timing the rapidity of a man's steps when he is walking or running but we can in both cases indicate clearly the length of the stroke or step and the length is generally a pretty good index of the rapidity supposing that with the idea of being original an artist should choose to represent the moment when the stroke is half rowed through when the bodies of the crew are comparatively upright and the arms beginning to bend can any one suppose that his drawing would have the same spirit as if he had taken the previous moment when the men were all extended from these examples we may deduce the rule that to represent action of any kind the figure should be extended to the full limit of the position necessary to produce that action having established this rule we will now consider how far it is applicable to the action of animals we find but little amongst the works of the old italian masters which can by any stretch of fancy be called a galloping horse but few of them attempted horse-painting at all, and those who did make the attempt were content to reproduce with more or less skill the heavy, shapeless war-horses of Roman sculpture. These portly animals were represented either at rest or pawing the ground. Sometimes, as in Leonardo da Vinci's Fight for the Standard, they are rearing, kicking, biting, and displaying every form of equine vice, but we very seldom come across a real galloping or even a trotting horse until the end of the sixteenth century. Rubens' horses are often represented galloping, but it must be confessed that they are not getting over the ground very fast. The hind legs are invariably on the ground and the fore legs well bent just straighten them a little and you have the prototype of the modern rocking horse 
this old-fashioned way of representing a horse galloping was blindly adopted by successive generations of artists through the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries i believe that carl vernet the father of horace was the first to innovate his studies of horses are admirable whether walking trotting or galloping their action is always spirited and suggestive his method has never been improved upon and probably never will it is now about two years since a very remarkable series of instantaneous photographs representing a horse at full gallop were brought over to england from america they were executed with great skill and care by an ingenious gentleman of san francisco and have been tested in london by means of an instrument called the praxinoscope which brings them in succession and at regular intervals before the eye their effect seen in this way is marvellous the grotesque absurd figures start into life and the result is a wonderful representation of a race-horse at full speed there is therefore no room for doubting the absolute correctness of every one of these diagrams which i have had enlarged for this lecture i need not describe in detail the manner in which the original negatives were taken it will be sufficient to say that electricity was absolutely indispensable for the operation twelve cameras were set up in a line with the track they were placed twenty-seven inches apart and each negative was taken instantaneously as soon as the galloping horse was opposite the camera the word instantaneously does not at all represent the rapidity with which the negatives were taken it was calculated that the time for each operation was under one two thousandth part of a second the interval between the production of the negatives was one twenty-fifth of a second which if multiplied by twelve will give about half a second for the completion of the series the original photographs are of course mere dark silhouettes but it is very wonderful that any result at all should have been obtained in the one two thousandth part of a second we are told that the celebrated flyer sally gardner was ridden by the jockey dom at a one and forty gate in front of the apparatus the one and forty gate translated into english means that sally gardner was going at the rate of a mile in one minute forty seconds which certainly is a great pace even for a derby winner now it has been shown for a great many years that the usual sporting way of representing a racer at full gallop is not correct stonehenge in his book on the horse published more than twenty years ago says quote, to represent the gallop pictorially in a perfectly correct manner is almost impossible at all events it has never yet been accomplished the ordinary and received interpretations being altogether erroneous when carefully watched the horse in full gallop will be seen to extend himself very much but not nearly to the length which is assigned to him by artists to give the idea of high speed the hind legs are thrust backward and the fore legs forward in a most unnatural position which if it could be assumed in reality would inevitably lead to a fall and most probably to a broken back stonehenge goes on to observe that quote, many artists have tried to break through the time-honored recipe for drawing a galloping horse but that the eye at once rebels the new version may be scientifically correct but the mind refuses its assent to the idea of great pace which is desired to be given 
End quote. Amongst the many artists alluded to by Stonehenge, I may mention my old acquaintance John Leach. Leach was far too keen an observer to be satisfied with the absolute truth of the ordinary method of representing a horse going across country, and accordingly he tried all kinds of positions for the legs, but always had to go back to some modification of the usually accepted one, viz. all four legs off the ground, and all more or less extended. He remarked to me thirty years ago how impractical it was to represent the true action of a galloping horse satisfactorily. I wonder what Stonehenge and Leach would have said could they have seen these extraordinary photographs. Out of the series of twelve there are only two, numbers two and three, which give the least idea of galloping, and in these two all the legs are tucked under the horse in a bunch well may the editor of the field have written back to america to say that there was some mistake as barring two which looked something like galloping all the others represented the horse as more or less stationary to me they looked more like the tricks of a highly trained steed in a circus however grotesque the position of a horse's legs may be we must perforce accept them as truthful and to those sceptics who cannot reconcile their minds to this fact i would observe that four-footed animals don't fly their legs not only touch the ground but must at one particular two thousandth part of a second be vertical and i am quite sure that under these conditions the cleverest draughtsman would fail to make the horse appear galloping jerry cole horace bernay and all the best delineators of horses galloping have represented them with all the feet in the air and the legs more or less extended it has now been proved beyond the possibility of doubt that this position is never assumed by the horse does it follow that the pictures of these artists are all wrong by no means speaking scientifically they are wrong but science and art though often bracketed together are very distinct and ought to be independent of each other so that if the old-fashioned way of representing a racer conveys to the mind a better idea of speed than any of these diagrams we ought to continue to wallow in our ignorance it is impossible to say what the art of the future may be we may get valuable hints from these and future instantaneous photographs we may learn to modify to a considerable extent the time-honoured sporting way of depicting horse races but i can hardly believe that the struggle for the derby of nineteen eighty one will be represented as above the other paces of the horses the walk and the trot have also been photographed by the same gentleman the results are curious but there is nothing so outrageously absurd as the one in forty gate photographs in conclusion i would caution you against being disquieted by any modern investigation of the true action of animals in art whatever appears right is right and this seems to me to constitute one of the differences between art and science i have already said that in drawing men or animals in motion artists are limited to one momentary position and that care should be taken that that momentary position be characteristic of the general action thus in the greyhound pursuing the hare the legs appear even more extended than in the racing horse and we ought accordingly to represent them in this way regardless of the literal truth 
what we call action both in men and animals is not the attitude at one particular moment but the combination of various attitudes in rapid succession to give a perfect representation of action lies therefore beyond the province of art all we can do is to select or sometimes even to invent an attitude which whether true or not true shall accurately give the general impression of what we want to represent we have heard a great deal lately of a new school of painters calling themselves impressionists i need hardly say i have but little sympathy with their work to neglect form as they ostentatiously do is to abandon voluntarily the highest quality of art but i must confess that in drawing animated objects in motion i am somewhat of an impressionist myself wherever from the rapidity of the movement any deliberate drawing of the form is out of the question i hold it to be much safer to trust to general impressions than to be guided by the results of instantaneous photography End of lecture six.